Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we have a real treat for you. Um, Someone who's been in the news recently because of his uh, positions and stance and in connection with the state that I live in, which is Florida. About a year ago, Governor Ron DeSantis invited invited our guest, Dr. Joe Ladapo, to uh, become the Surgeon General of Florida. And I'm so glad he did because he's a great guy, as you're going to find out very shortly. Uh, He has an unbelievable history with respect to um, how he got to his position. He was born in Nigeria, came to the United States at the age of five, moved to Georgia, and then wound up going to Wake Forest College. And he was an athlete. I think he was there on an academic scholarship, not academic, uh, uh, athletic scholarship. Was it an athletic scholarship you were at? Yeah, Wake Forest? It was academic. Oh, is that gonna, okay, I'm sorry, I mixed it up. I confused because you're because you are an athlete too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're a decathlete, and and uh, from there he went into Harvard Medical School, and then eventually transitioned out to UCLA. Uh, uh, and he'll he'll show the more details in the story. But then then he got invited to be the Florida Surgeon General, and we're going to go into the details. He's written a book. That's the reason he's on. He's written a book, and it's called Transcend Fear. Let me get a specific title mindful leadership in public health. And he really is public health, which is why Dr. Uh, Governor DeSantis selected him for this position. So we're grateful to have him here. He's a real leader in the state, sticking up for, for truth and fighting the, the well, certainly the national, but the global tyranny. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Dr. Marcola. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So, um, you have a fascinating, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your writing style. You are a gifted writer. It was such a pleasure to read your book. It, it, it's unusual. I was kind of surprised and shocked because of your age and, you know, your, your, your experience that you would write so well, but maybe not. And I suspect maybe one of the reasons you got Dr. Or Governor DeSantis' attention is that, and you, you quote, the, now you reference these articles, uh, you, you were like essentially a, a Wall Street Journal. Uh, yeah, you had your own column. <laughs> you must have put in like a dozen or more edit- uh, uh, letters to the editor, or was it an op-ed? I'm, I'm not sure how they were categorized, but you got a lot of, lot of exposure in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, that really brought you to national prominence. So how did, how did that happen? Well, I, I think the bottom line um, to answer with one word is God. <laughs> so it, it, it started with, um, with me working in the hospital in, well, in terms of COVID, it started with me working in the hospital in March of 2020. And- um, Is this and, in UCLA? In UCLA? Yeah, this was at UCLA, Ronald Reagan Hospital. And I was working in the hospital the week that the the governor shut down the hospital, the governor of California, uh, the hospital, <laughs> he, he didn't shut down the hospital, but he shut down the state. Yeah, of course. And, um, 
you know, I was there that you would have liked to shut down the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Newsom. Oh, so many mistakes, so many mistakes. Yeah. And, um, you know, it just so happened, you know, I was there that week. I took care of some patients with COVID. I witnessed the mayhem in the hospital. I mean, I've never seen anything like it um, in terms of um, how frantic people were and how frantic the leadership was. And, you know, from there, I just, you know, I, I, my wife and I were chatting about it constantly. And, you know, we had a different take than the take that, you know, UCLA and, and most everyone else was pushing. So I wrote an article, um, was accepted in USA Today, and um, I uh, shared it with one of the uh, members of the Wall Street Journal editorial staff who had been writing, Holman Jenkins, who'd been writing also about COVID in a way that was not similar to how other people were writing. And he liked it. Their, um, their team liked it. And um, I wrote another article a few weeks later about the lockdowns. And that was the first of several other articles that ended up being published there, which I'm grateful for because, um, you know, there was, I mean, it was just, it was like going into the twilight zone. Like you think about um, those two years of deep um, or almost two years of deep COVID theater. And madness. Yeah. Madness for sure. So um, I was really surprised that your piece got accepted at USA Today because they're a pretty hardcore mainstream paper. Uh, and I, I, I just actually almost shocked that they, they printed it because that's really not supporting their narrative. Wall Street Journal, not so much so because the, many of them, they're probably leaning more towards the center. But the USA Today, I don't know how you got it in there. Maybe just the one word answer, God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Joe. No, you're right, Dr. McCullough. I mean, it, it was, um, you know, what? I think what helped was that it was early in the pandemic. So mm-hmm. it was before it became hyper political and everyone was really entrenched. Um, and I think, you know, the editor just... You know, they had, you're right, probably one or two weeks later, it would never have gotten in because mm-hmm. not shortly after that, they put in, they wrote an editorial board, uh, editorial board article that I, I read that was basically the very opposite of what I wrote, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. lockdowns and, you know, flatten the curve and, you know, just all have to, you know, sacrifice and that will fix the problem. Um, that's our best shot, you know, stuff that is just obviously is just completely wrong and completely false. Um, but it, it happened to, you know, it, the stars were yeah. aligned. Well, God was on your side for sure. Cause that, that's obviously the best answer because, you know, literally two weeks later, he probably never would have got it and never would have pivoted to the wall street journal. So congratulations on that one. Um, I'd like to go through your early history cause I think it is fascinating. And uh, I was intrigued with uh, some of the things that you wrote, Um, particularly, you know, one of the things that we share in common is that uh, my father was a big fan of corporal punishment like yours. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately created a lot of resentment in me and uh, which I didn't, I I never really progressed to the level of forgiveness, true authentic forgiveness until much later. I mean, actually until after he died, which was only a few years ago. And uh, but you were a lot had a lot more enlightened stance, I think, largely through 
your spiritual practices, your wife, and some some counselors that you were connected. And you and you kind of, you uh, you elevated to the point where you had a very wise approach. And uh, maybe you can just summarize. I've got I've caught got a copy of the paragraph you wrote, but maybe it would probably be better better coming from your mouth to tell us how that how that experience was and how it really changed your life. Because I you know, what what again what I really enjoyed about your book is that you went right deep into your personal life before you started into the COVID stuff. So when and it just gave us a good frame of, of what what your uh, background was. Well, you know, I, I mean, so you know, one of the things I talk about, which is I wouldn't be right here right now if it hadn't happened and mm-hmm. it's not something that should have ha- should not have happened but it did happen and fortunately it happens too often and that was uh that i was sexually abused by a babysitter when i was when i was small um you know i was probably uh, four years old um somewhere around there and um and and that um you know i it happened and I actually didn't think that it had much of an effect on me, um, but it turned out it, it actually had a profound effect on me. And it, it basically, um, her breaking my boundaries and obviously with things that were beyond my capacity to understand as a you know, uh, four-year-old, sure. Um, it basically numbed me to authentic connection with other people. And I didn't know this was happening. I thought, you know, it happened, whatever, you know, I'm fine. But I I didn't know um, really what had happened until I fell in love with my wife. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the thing about love is that it brings everything to the surface. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so that was, that was a major thing. It was actually much more influential on, um, who I was, how I, how I, you know, how I um, showed up in the world, than even my dad. My dad, um, he, that guy, um, unfortunately, he had a very rough childhood, and you know, he grew up in Nigeria, and um, and you know, certainly when he was growing up, you know, corporal punishment was um, was that was just normal, like that's how they did things. But, you know, even in that environment, of course, you have people with different um, dispositions and different personalities. And unfortunately, I met some of his family members and and, um, and I was able to, you know, I, I sort of um, in, uh, inferred a lot of this from my meetings with them, uh, including his mom. Um, he had it very rough. That guy, he's really, he had a very, very, very... Uh, very rough childhood and um and he believed in corporal punishment also and you know his disposition was just that um you know my dad still to this day just he just has not recovered from the um from the impact of those, um, of the experiences, the, uh, you know, the, the trauma, tra- the traumatic experiences that he had as a child. And he definitely did the best he could. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, it was, um, there were many things that were like the very opposite of what my wife and I, for example, have created for our children or what is 
um, or what you need in terms of the environment that you create to have um, healthy children. And I mean, you know, healthy physically, you know, healthy in terms of how they feel about themselves and the world and, and possibilities. So that also shaped um, who I was um, in, in different ways. So I'm assuming your dad's still alive. You mentioned the book, you got a PhD in microbiology in Louisiana. So he's still alive now? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And are you the oldest of all your siblings? I have an older sister and younger brother. Okay. So so typically it's the the oldest that gets the brunt of the abuse. (laughs) Right. It's, yeah, unfortunately that that's true. Um, Yeah. It wasn't, you know, I mean, in terms of corporal punishment, that was me instead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, in some ways, I think I sort of filled in the role of the oldest, and partly because my sister was, she was different, and I was the first boy, and you know, she was a girl. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and again, they, he and my mom, they did, they did the best that they could. Like, I know they, they definitely tried, but, um, you know, she all we all experience different um, things from my parents and the environment that that we created as a home they created for us, and um, you know that affected each one of us differently. So I'm curious: Do you still have good relationships with your parents? And uh, is your dad proud of you? Did you ever tell you that? Does he ever express his love to you? Yeah, he does. He does. And he truly, I mean, the man, he, he has a good, he has a good heart and, you know, and it's, um, he, he does, he does. And I will say that, um, that, you know, m- you know, my dad is like, he is not as, um, I, I think that the best, I'm trying to think about how to describe this, so as I said, he did the best that he, he did the best that he could. One of the tough things about trauma is, you know, is that um, it disconnects people from themselves and, you know, everyone is different. So the effects that different types of trauma have on people um, are different. And he is, he experienced um, so much that, you know, and it's not irreparable. It is. But, you know, it's like, that's not, it's hard to get that. I, I was lucky to get that, but I only got it by chance. Um, and really by grace. Right. More by grace. Right. Yeah. But, you know, so he does the best that he can. He loves as well as he can. And, um, and he has, you know, limitations that, um, you know, that are rooted in, in who he is and, and the environment that he grew up in. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very mature uh, perspective that you evolved into. So I congratulate you for doing much, much earlier than I ever did. You know, so thank you, but I didn't just get here. I mean, it truly, I know it took a long time. I know I fortunately was never sexually abused, but uh, you know, I had the the father trauma issues. So uh, I think, 
probably you can expand on that because a big part of your story is the, you know, the romantic encounter with your wife and how she has been such an important influence in your, in your, in your own life and help you find these resources to, to reach this level of understanding. So because of what was going on with me inside, you know, I, again, I was walking around thinking I was normal. Meanwhile, I was, I had not, you know, I'd had like quote unquote romantic relationships with girls, but I had not, I never emotionally connected, like genuine emotional connection with a girl. I had no idea. You know, I thought that what was happening was normal um, in terms of, you know, how I was in relationships. Um, So that's what I did. And, um, and then I took a trip to the Virgin Islands in the, in medical school. And, um, and I had a great time there, scuba diving stuff. I, you know, great time there. And on the, on the trip back home, um, there was a woman sitting across the aisle next to me. And, uh, you know, I don't know why I, I just, I started talking to her. Did you both, did you have both have aisle seats? We both had aisle seats. Yeah. She was one row in front of me, one row in front of me. We just started talking. I mean, believe it or not, she asked us about this. I obviously I was like, I wanted to talk to her and, and her phone was interesting. So I asked her something about her phone and, um, we ended up talking the whole flight and the flight landed in Newark and, um, and it was in the middle of a hurricane. So uh, connecting flights, she lived in California at the time I was going back to Boston, connecting flights were canceled. Everyone was scrambling as they got off the plane. And I thought, you know, we talked the whole time, you know, we had, we talked for like, I don't know, however many few hours the flight was. And uh, I thought, you know, let me just get her number because, you know, we had a nice conversation. And so I did that. And, um, and then what happened was that, um, you know, we kind of played phone tag for a few months, I think. And then we got into a rhythm and we were like, we were talking and we would talk for, you know, four hours, five hours, six hours, eight hours. I would see the sun rise, you know, from, from talking so long. And, um, I didn't know it at the time, but basically I was falling in love with her and, you know, and I, if she had physically been in Boston, instead of on the other side of the country, like it it would never have been the same because all of my junk and undealt with garbage with relationships would have, you know, introduced this physical element and all this other junk and crap that I was full of. I mean, I had an endless supply of, you know, bull fill in the blank because I didn't know any better. I mean, that's, that's how, that's, um, that's, that's who I, that's what I knew. Um, and that's who I was, but, um, but instead I had no idea what was happening, but we, we fell in love over the phone and that opened up, you know, many other doors. Now it just occurred to me, um, that your wife is in California. Is that part of the reason why you went to UCLA after you graduated at Harvard? No, actually, actually, 
it's part of the reason I, I looked at UCLA, but, um, but it just turned out that um, my first job was at New York University and it just turned oh, okay. out someone who was just coming out, just finishing residency and starting a research career that was a better, they just had a better program. And they, I got great training there. I was there for five years. And then we moved to Los Angeles, we moved to UCLA. And that move was because we were looking for better weather for my wife's migraines that were like, that, that were doing poorly in New York and were at least partly related to the, to the bad weather. There. Was that the Kennedy Krieger Center that you were at in New York? Oh, you mean for the kids? Yeah, yeah. We looked there. We ended up uh, we ended up putting the kids in a place nearby yeah. um, called um, it was a uh, Bright Horizons. Oh, okay. It looked there. I think they didn't have any spots or something when we were first. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. And then your your wife, I think, found uh, a therapist for you to address all these issues. Yeah, yeah. So when we, you know, so I felt I fell in love with her, didn't know what was happening, but that's that's what happened. And then um um you know, we were just talking, 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 and I was, you know, I, I didn't love talking to her, I, you know, and at that time I was in the Kennedy School. So I'd taken some time off to pursue um first a master's, but then I ended up pursuing a PhD in health policy. And um and, you know, I was like, oh, you know, you should come back and visit. So she came back to visit and, um, and you know, it was magical time. We ended up ex- extending her stay. And then I went there to visit her. And then she came back to visit. This was over like maybe a two month period. And at that point we were like, what's the point? We don't ever, we don't want to be apart. So just stay, you know, why, why go back? So um, her friends helped move her stuff over to, uh, you know, put her stuff on a, on a moving, uh, you know, moving company truck and brought it to Boston, Cambridge is where my apartment was with a good friend of mine who um, ended up, um, he came to my, he came to our wedding and, um, but here, you know, I was having this, just this warm, you know, delicious, comfortable, like nurturing, just experience of love and falling in love. And, um, but it just at the same time, all of this other stuff was just erupting out of me like a volcano. And, um, and, and it was stuff related to, you know, to, to, my experience of sex and sexuality, actually not even sex, actually sexuality, really. Um, and of course, and that of course related to what happened to me when this woman um, broke my boundaries as a child and, you know, stuff related to how my, the environment that my parents had created for us and the beliefs they had instilled in us, which not all of which, some of which were completely unhealthy for relationships, for actually having genuine, um, genuine relationships with other people. And it was literally like a volcano. Like I felt like, a, you know, it's just, the stuff was just pouring out of me. And, um, and, she, and the, the first thing, and she tried to help me as much as she could, but um, she said, you've got to go see a therapist. 
And, um, and fortunately for a guy who was extremely distrusting, I probably found the one guy that I could talk to at that stage in my life. And that did help. Um, but it was, it was one step on, I didn't know it, but, but quite a long staircase. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, it really helped prepare you for your future responsibilities in life. So I think maybe now if you can dive into the, your experience at UCLA, you would respect it there. You liked it, but obviously it's about as far as about as progressive left as you can get. And with respect to censoring free speech and tyranny and ridiculous, insane, irrational recommendations. So it, it, it's hard to imagine that you could have lasted there a lot longer than you did. So, uh, you know, I guess, you were a bit apprehensive when DeSantis gave you the phone call, but your wife was just <laughs> jumped on and told you to get out here. So maybe you can discuss that transition. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Ricola. Yeah. So, well, <clears throat> so, you know, I mean, it, in my first few years at UCLA, things were splendid. You know, I had, I had grants, um, research grants, my research was going well. Um, clinical work was going well and um and you know and all that on the professional side was going well and at the same time um on my personal side we finally were having kids and um and and you know the kind of the, the, these problems that i was having were driving my poor wife nuts and, you know, and so that was actually falling apart. I mean, and, you know, and the kids were only making it more complicated because kids tend to bring up stuff too for people that um, if they, you know, that they haven't dealt with. So it was like literally at the lowest point, which happened to be right before the pandemic. You know, Brianna had me, she, she told me she, she found someone that she thought I should see. And I described that my experience working with him a bit. His name is Christopher Maher, and um, he's a he's a former Navy SEAL. Has just a, he's had a very um, you know very interesting journey himself in his own life, and um, I ended up working with him. And he is he was the last guy I worked with, and I, I don't need to work with anyone else um, because of him. And basically, he used you know this combination of like of Chinese medicine um, sort of principles, uh, Ch- Chinese uh, meridian uh, theory, and um, and you know, and stuff related to stuff I don't really I don't understand fully, but stuff related to qi and to flow, and involved physical manipulations and other um, and other types of exercises and activities to help me free, help free me from, um, from the, the effects, like sort of the clause that, that, um, that my, you know, my traumatic experience with the babysitter and the effects that that had stuff related to my family, stuff related to other things and help me get free of those things. And it, it was all essentially kind of grounded in fear in terms of helping get free. And, um, and I was literally like reborn. I was just, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't understand. It's the closest thing to a miracle that I've ever experienced, but it, um, and it happened and it happened in December of 2019, right before the pandemic. Um, and of course, then the pandemic rolled around 
And had I not had that experience, I would never have been able to do the things that I did, you know, being able to, you know, see clearly and to do things that, you know, in the past I would have been too afraid to do or too muddled in my own personal BS to be able to like see and identify. So, um, so that happened. So, so you, you, you believe that that experience uh, insulated you against the brainwashing propaganda. Oh, absolutely. Pressure. So social pressures, enormous social pressures. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I never, none of this, none of anything that's happened since then would have happened if Brianna hadn't found Christopher um, and gotten me to see him. I was trying not to see him. Uh, I didn't want to pay the money. I didn't want to spend the time. You know, I was lazy to some extent, even though I did want to get better. Um, but thank God I saw him. And none of this, none of this, nothing, none of this would have been possible. I mean, I was riddled with with fear, Dr. Mercola. I had, um, it was just a, it was a part of my life, a part of my being. Um, I looked like everything was good on the outside, but I was, I was riddled with fear. And my wife was, is, has always been very sensitive. So, you know, you, whatever was happening inside of me, she could, she could feel it. Um, and, and it was showing up in different ways and just making her miserable. Um, but nothing, none of this would have happened. Like none of it, you know, it would have been impossible for me to have a clear vision and to be able to stay clearly on a goal um, or be able to stay within myself when everyone's throwing all this junk at me, as you know, you certainly know firsthand all the junk that when you're, when you're, when you're sharing a message that people don't like, and really what that means is that they're threatened by it. You know, when people are threatened by something, they throw all sorts of their junk on you, um, in terms of their projections and, and um, I would never have been able to withstand any of that and re- remain within myself if I had not had that experience. Well, terrific. I'm so glad you did. Yeah. So uh, it's been about a year since you moved to, from California to Florida. So it would be interesting to you for to share some of your personal observations. Obviously, it's been um, not conflicted, but uh, com- combined with the, pre- the uh, responsibilities of a, of a new office for you. But uh, maybe you can compare California to Florida in 2021 to 2022. <laughs> yeah. Well, Got to be a different contrast. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know. You know, Cal- it was, uh, it, it was, I don't know if you even dared to go out there during the pandemic. Oh, I did. I was out there quite a bit actually. Through the pandemic. Yeah. For, yeah so I was getting some training. So uh, I had some exposure to it, but I didn't live there. What, you know, it was, California was, um, I mean, it was quite miserable. You know, they were, they were, um, they were pouring the Kool-Aid in terms of leadership at UCLA, at other hospitals, certainly at the county level. Uh, we were in LA County at the state level, just pouring the Kool-Aid, you know, they were mixing it up. So, you know, you know, everything is dangerous. You have to, you know, stay inside. You can't socialize with people. You must wear a mask. 
all of this stuff is very serious, especially for the kids, you know, and they can't, I mean, we were our neighborhood playground. I wanted to burn down these stupid little um, barriers that they put around the playground. I just could kill someone. I mean, it was just so frustrating. Um, and, you know, they, they, they removed the hoops on the basketball courts. It was, I, it was maddening, honestly. I think they, they even put in, they dumped sand in the skateboard parks. It was, I mean, I just, you point, you're like, what are these people thinking, you know? And they just, they, they just wanted everyone to, um, I honestly, and I struggle a little bit because it was, I like, I, I almost wanted to cry sometimes because it was just so, it was, um, it, it was such an, it was such an assault on people's humanity and on what made people people in terms of, um, uh, being able to come together and to socialize. I mean, these guys, they pulled down basketball rings, just rings just so that people couldn't play. And it was, I was, it was so hard. It was really, really, I mean, I, it was very, um, you know, I'm thinking about it and I, you know, it, it, it brings, um, it brings tears to my eyes because it, it just, it was, it was such a harm with zero benefit. And, um, and real harm, you know, these are, these are things that are, they're part of the fabric that connect humans to other humans, you know, mm -hmm. um, anyone who's played pickup basketball knows that, you know, strangers become friends, you know, and bonds are made and that, and, um, and, you know, and that was, that was just, it, that was an, those were just examples of the general, um, syndrome and that, that, um, that California health officials, were propagating and we're trying to get everyone else to buy into. And, um, you know, with the schools, the schools were crazy. My wife and I, of course, they were, they were pushing the masking nonsense with the kids. So my wife and I, first of all, they shut down. So then that was that. Then they tried to push Zoom on kids. And my wife was like, not a chance in hell. You know, that's terrible for kids. And so we didn't do that. Um, then when they quote unquote reopened the schools um, and I, you know, reopened it with like weekly testing and the mask and the kids can't talk while they eat and eat out all this total nonsense. You know, my wife and I were like, no, you know, we're not going to do that. So we were doing the um, homeschooling thing. And, um, I, you know, it was, it, it was just, it was sad that people did that to other people. And it was also sad that so many people were willing to go along with it. And truly, some people thought that it was the right thing to do. But a lot of people knew that it wasn't the right thing to do. And, you know, I, I, it, was, it made me sad that they still went along with it. Um, so, California. It's been a little different experience in Florida, I suspect. <laughs> it's great. I mean, here people were happy to be free, you know, they recognize, and, you know, this was very, when I came here, yeah, LA was essentially still under lockdown. Like, yeah, I got mm -hmm. them asking in Ubers and masks and in stores and all that nonsense. And, um, but here, you know, people really appreciated the fact that Governor DeSantis didn't allow that to happen and that they could go about uh, by and large, with very few exceptions, enjoying their lives. 
you know, and, um, and it, that was, it was so, it was, it was, it was interesting to see that because it was not lost on people who lived here that mm -hmm. other people in the United States were having a different experience. Yeah. And it reminds me in many ways of the benefits that we have in Florida during the winter when it's, you don't have to wear a coat to go outside and the rest of the country might be digging out of snow, snow banks and sub-zero readings and you say, Oh, I wish I was in Florida. So it's, it's good to be here for two reasons. So I'm wondering if you could um, expand on your responsibilities as Surgeon General, because I think it's it's a role that isn't present in many states, or maybe even most, I don't know. But I do know we have it in Florida. So uh, certainly there's a, a, a federal Surgeon General, who of course would never be appointed while following the narrative. But uh, how many state, state uh, Attorney Generals are there, or sur Surgeon Generals, sorry? No, exactly. I mean, I think it's the minority. Um, I, my, I, you know, I've looked a little bit before, and I would, I would guess maybe around, maybe ten, maybe a okay. dozen states have. So maybe twenty-five percent. Maybe something like that. Something yeah. like that. So what? So you're not a surgeon, obviously. If anything, you're more of an internist. Uh, <laughs> so you don't have to be a surgeon to be a surgeon general. Is this, it's a certain, yeah, it's a surgeon general. So what is, what are your responsibilities? What is, what does a surgeon general do during the day? Well, I, I oversee the department of health in at Florida and, um, and the department of health in Florida, it, it's an enormous department. I think we have, I, I want to say we have maybe somewhere around 15 or 16,000 employees. Wow. It's, it's an integrated health department across all of the counties. So all of the counties and all 67 counties have their own county health departments. And we are the, um, you know, we oversee all of them. We work closely with them. They're staffed with, um, with you know, really wonderful people who are devoted to health and public health. And, you know, we have a very broad portfolio, you know, from everything from, um, infectious disease outbreaks to, um, you know, inspection of swimming pools, uh, to migrant housing and kind of inspecting those types of facilities, um, you know, epidemiology, um, disease prevent prevention in terms of promotion of sure. health practices like exercise and diet. And, um, um, stuff for moms and babies. So it's a really expansive portfolio. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be in the position. It's a very strong group that I work with in Tallahassee. Mm -hmm. um, and um, of course, I work closely with the governor and, uh, and, and people in his office, too. And that I'm surprised I didn't realize that because the federal or the national surgeon general doesn't have anywhere those as he's certainly not in charge of the health department. That's for sure. I had no idea you were in charge of all of the state of Florida's health, health services. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, quite a few responsibilities. It's, it's really a, quite an administrative position, you know, it, whereas in the federal thing, it seems like it's more of a figurehead to, to uh, implement the narrative that they're trying to push. 
Yeah, it, it, um, it, it, it's definitely different at the federal level. And I think it's it seems just historically, it seems to really be very dependent on um, who that individual is. And it's a shame because um, it's, it, you know, it's mostly been wasted currently. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, you know, you had, you had what we had two years of hardcore pandemic and uh, to the best of my knowledge, you know, not a single word about, um, about exercise, about weight loss, like, um, sun about, exposure, yeah, vitamin sun exposure. D. yeah, things that we think, or, you know, or very much, very clearly know are important factors in, in helping you live longer and survive, not just this virus, but other viruses and other conditions. Like, you know, talk about a wasted opportunity. I mean, it's, it's absurd that that wasn't a major part of the public health conversation uh, over the last you know, two, two and a half years. Yeah, I remember when I was in med school, the Surgeon General at the time was actually played a big role in public health. It was C. Ever Coop. And mm. he was primarily responsible for leading up the anti-tobacco campaign. Yeah. Now, it wasn't it was another t- almost 20 years before the um, state attorney generals got in and essentially sued the heck, out, litigated the heck out of the tobacco industry and, and really changed things dramatically. And the, and the amount of number of percentage of smokers dropped pretty, pretty radically. So, uh, but, they, but it just shows that that office could be used effectively. It had the potential, but, but essentially that never happened. You're, you're absolutely right, Dr. Mercola. Uh, it's a it's a real shame, and it's it's a mistake that um, that we're not making here in Florida. And certainly, with me as as uh, head of the Department of Health and Surgeon General for the state, it's just absolutely not. You know, I'm I'm a huge huge believer in you know personal empowerment and personal health. Um, so one of the things I appreciate about the work that uh, that you do. Really important, um, and you would voice better than I. I I'm sure I, I could for people to take as much responsibility for their own health as possible. Um, it's so important, and prevention is really important. And doing things that um, that we can do to prevent the onset of disease is is huge. And you know, you don't do that by staying in your house and not <laughs> not being around other people or wearing, you know, stupid things over your mouth. Like that's not going to make you a stronger, healthier person. Yeah, I'm sure. So uh, as we're doing this interview, I think a few days ago, the president of the United States declared a public health emergency with respect to monkeypox. So it's, it's in the news now. And obviously the, the World Health Organization, Tedros, unilaterally declared a global pandemic emergency uh, even though his advisory committee voted nine to six against it, he thought he thought they weren't smart enough, so he overruled them. And uh, but it's but it's, it's no surprise; it's absolutely predictable. But it, I'm wondering, uh, has there been any federal pressure to imp- as a result of this monkeypox uh, emergency, or uh, are there any changes that the state of Florida is going to enact? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so basically, you know, we have a plan and, um, and basically that plan involves 
you know, identifying um, uh, areas that have higher rates of transmission, that have individuals with, uh, you know, a higher population of individuals with risk factors for transmission and, um, you know, providing them education about, about, um, about how it's transmitted and what we know about that. And also providing, um, offering the, uh, the monkey vax vaccine to individuals who want to take that, who choose to take that and you know, and and that's and that's and that's basically the plan. You know what we what we've seen is you know this playbook at the federal level and at some states of being sort of disconnected from reality. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, one thing is you know it's it's you know in Florida as in most and is in the rest of the nation, you know something like ninety nine percent of the cases are men, and almost all of those are in gay men, and so. It may not remain that way. Um, that remains to be seen. But especially if the virus has been engineered. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I, we don't know, but there's a suspicion for sure. Mm-hmm. Just like the SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so we, um, so we're just having very plain public health messaging about that. And unfortunately, you know, people are so wrapped up in their politics, like. Oh, you know, that they're asking these questions. It's kind of essentially the same types of questions that got us into trouble with um, with COVID, with some of the policies that were really dumb um, in terms of like, you know, keeping kids out of school and and having trying to make like two year olds wear, wear masks. It, you know, people just people are um, they're so caught up in their politics that they can't speak plainly. And so there's been all this debate about talking to people about um, about uh, their you know, sexual risk factors. It's been so convoluted. I mean, I can't even keep up with it. I mean, basically, you know, the, what we've done is we've been very clear in our language. And the thing is, if you're not like if you're not. Um, if you're not judgmental toward people, if you don't, um, if you're not biased against people, it's a lot easier just to be honest and truthful and not worry about how it's going to be received exactly, or if you're going to offend someone or make someone think that you're trying to say something about who they are. And we're not, uh, we've just been very clear about what the risk factors are. And, you know, our strategy is to do the best that we can to help reduce the, uh, the reduce the transmission mission so that's we've been very you know straightforward about that and not sort of pushing some of the hysteria and, and all the political junk that we're seeing come up great so what have been the biggest surprises uh, in moving to florida and, and taking this huge responsibility on on your shoulders probably the politics have been has been the biggest surprise i mean i it's just, it's really remarkable how, um, I, I just, I, I, I never imagined working in any arena that had a, you know, substantial political components and seeing the, the games, you know, the tournament, it's, it's almost like a, like a, uh, game of Thrones, you know, cause it's, mm-hmm. it's a blood sport and, uh, and it's really treated that way in terms of, um, in terms of the politics and, and people are, you know, the games that are played, you, the spinning of words, the, um, the creation of words and the creation of, of narratives, 
um, just the outright false statements. Uh, that's 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 probably been just and how willing some people are to say whatever they want to say, irrespective of what the truth is. Is it at the national level or in Florida? Uh, it's at the national level. And it, I mean, okay. it's everywhere, you know, national, state. Okay. I, w- I would be surprised that was coming out of Florida. I said, boy, that's why you moved here. <laughs> to oh, avoid well, that no, stuff. No. Oh, I see. well, some stations in Florida, some yeah. some news stations in Florida. You know, okay, yeah, then that's not surprising at all. Yeah, but yeah, but sure. but but the I thought you were referring to the politics within your department. Oh no, no, I'm talking okay. about I get right. Oh, I'm talking. I mean, there, there's some politics. You know, it's administration. Yeah, uh, yeah, but my minor stuff. Have, yeah, but um, no, I'm talking. Yeah, I'm talking about sort of the politics on the sort of the political stage of what. Um, what's you know um how public health interacts with you know politics on the grander scale whether it's you know the republicans and the democrats the liberals and the the conservatives and and all of that okay well that makes sense then so uh what do you enjoy most that's a good question um there I think the thing that I enjoy most is how fun it is to be able to push something forward that you think is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, and to be able to do it in a way that you feel was effective, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and particularly when you're disrupting some, you know, essentially some false narrative or some false beliefs that, you know, that have come in. Um, That's the funnest part for sure. I mean, it's been, I can't tell you how I get so much satisfaction from the fact that, you know, that we, um, we just completely rejected all of the lies that were being pushed about the uh, COVID-19 vaccines in children, specifically healthy children. I just, I'm, I'm so satisfied that, that, um, and just so pleased and so grateful that I had a platform from which I could just completely, you know, exclaim something um, opposite of that, total mirage i mean it was just that just that completely specious uh uh you know story that the cdc and you know and the, and the federal administration was trying to push i mean that brings yeah. me a tremendous amount yeah. of one of the biggest crimes against humanity uh, egregious crimes yeah so and i did you have something to do with uh Governor DeSantis refusing to actually order any of the initial batch of vaccines that subsequently did, but he was the only governor of the state that didn't order any for the kids, for the kids. Well, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we didn't. I mean, I don't, you know, so Governor DeSantis, he's, he's unfortunately blessed with, um, with tremendous clarity. So he, you know, and, and we, we basically almost never, sort of discuss things um, in terms of where to land on something ahead of time. We just, we just almost for everything, we just end up landing at the same place. And, um, and, you know, so we've worked together. He certainly, um, 
you know, he's added for sure to my appreciation of how to approach problems. And I I hope that I've been beneficial to him too. So, you know, some of it was administrative uh, because there were just, there were uh, efficiency problems with ordering those vaccines centrally when individual providers could order them. Like, you know, the the media tried to make a big, again, a totally false story about, (laughs) Um, about like us preventing docs, that never happened. Doctors could always order them through um, through a system that we have for doctors to order vaccines. So um, what didn't make sense was us ordering them and then pushing them out. And, um, uh, you know, so, you know, we did that. Yeah, know, but it didn't make sense. It was the only state in the country didn't do it. <laughs> Well, only state. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, sadly, just a lot of people either have been, um, you know, just, I don't know, either, you know, or either brainwashed. <laughs> there's some of that for sure. Um, but, you know, people, I, I understand that people often don't want to stick their necks out either. And sure. that's been part of it. Because, you so, know, obviously so- the parents are, parents are voting with their feet. I mean, the uptake. Yeah, yeah. Kitty vaccine. So- so speaking of that, what I, I believe nationally, the the adoption rate of the vaccines in the five month old to the 11 year old is like two percent. Is that right? And if it is, what is this? What is the adoption rate in Florida? Is it below one percent, below a half percent? I don't know. Yeah. So it's it's. It, I mean, I, I think we're just slightly under the national average. You got okay. some states like California and New York sort of pulling up the average, but it's yeah. oh, and parents are voting with their. You know, parents are voting with their feet, and unfortunately, we're waking up from this. You know, were you expecting that? I was really surprised. I thought it'd be a higher adoption rate, but I mean, it, to me, that is one of the bright spots of this whole thing. I mean, to have the insanity of these federal regulatory agencies approving these unnecessary jabs. Uh, and, but the, yet, even though they were available, I, I, it's just shocking that well over 90%, 95% of the, of the, of the parents said no. Yeah. They were smarter than the regulators. I know I, I'm with you. I think it was, it's, it's a really, it's been a bright spot uh, mm-hmm. to have that. I mean, I'm just honest to God. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe even more grateful than you, Dr. Marcola. I honestly, it just, it really, um, it really lightens my heart that, um, that many, so many parents have just kind of see it for what it is, which is a total lie. You know, this notion that, uh, that children needed this, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the data are quite weak. None of the clinical randomized trial data show a clinical benefit. Um, other studies, uh, none of the data there's not a single study that I've seen that shows a clinical benefit in healthy children, even in the um, over five-year-old age group. So it's, it's, and it's been so hard for me personally, just watching the CDC and the federal leadership spit out pure lies, like false mm-hmm. statements. And unfortunately for a lot of people to gobble up and, and interpret it as truth. So th- it's very refreshing to see parents to say, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So you are now part of the public health establishment and like it or not, <laughs> you are. So 
I, I'm wondering what your view is. I mean, relatively recent member of it, but still, uh, it appears that the, the, the federal public health authorities have irreversibly damaged their credibility. Unrecoverable. I, I, in my mind, I can't ever see how they get out of this thing. But perhaps you have a different view. I mean, what do you think it takes for, the, to, for them to restore the confidence in at least you know, a huge percentage, maybe the majority of the public have just absolutely lost their confidence, as is obviously demonstrated by the parents voting with their feet and not getting these, these jabs for their kids. So what do you think it's lost? Do you think what is it going to take a great reset to, to get the confidence back, basically firing everyone in authority, or will it ever come back? No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, they've a lot, um, a lot of confidence has been lost. I mean, a tremendous amount of confidence among Republicans and conservatives. Um, still, a, you know, from the studies I've seen, still a good amount among, um, you know, Democrats and liberals, even though many of them still think that, you know, everything that was done was the right thing. You know, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think that, I don't know if they're going to regain it back, um, during, you know, sort of my lifetime. I mean, people are not going to forget um, what happened uh, in, in terms of all the egregious um, um, violations of human rights and human sovereignty that um, that happened over these these past couple of years. I think that it would take, I mean, it, it's, it's actually part of what my book is about, which is a really essential theme, which is, um, you know, shaking yourself of the BS and, mm -hmm. you know, and, it, and it's not your fault. That's just how life is. People grow up and, and, um, and they, you know, stress and trauma, they have effects on people. And then it gets hard, you know, people have a hard time seeing straight, seeing the truth, um, standing up, you know, when they think, when they do recognize that something wrong is happening. So, but, you know, but those things have to happen for someone to take um, real responsibility and only accepting real responsibility for transgressions, only that will be interpreted, um, accepted by the public. And short of that, you will never re-earn people's trust. Mm -hmm. At least for not sure. Great. Yeah, it, it's in stark contrast because right when I was starting med school, we had the swine flu vaccine, late 70s, mm -hmm. and the government stopped. This, this was like eight, seven or eight years before the 1986 Act, which essentially insulated all vaccine manufacturers from liability. But, but the government stopped the swine flu vaccine program after only 50 deaths, 50 deaths. And they even paid, I, I think it was, a, might've been a few billion, but I could be off on those numbers, but they certainly paid damages for the people who were injured and died. That none of that has occurred here. And in fact, up until recently, I think the CDC denied there was anyone, anyone who died from the, from the jab. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know what their, their current position is, but they might've admitted to a few, but you know, there's a large number of good, credible scientific evaluations that suggest that number, which is vastly underreported in VAERS from anywhere from 10 to 100 fold, but let's say 30 to 40 times. If, you're, if you accept that, you're looking at a, maybe half a million deaths and probably more. So, I mean, that is two orders of, no, two, 
That's three orders of magnitude. Be a, or was it four? No, I can't. It, it's, it's orders of magnitude more than the deaths from swine flu. And, and it just, and it's still going strong and still want to push it on the kids. Well, I, I agree with you, Dr. Mercola, that this safety, I mean, this, it's just, there's just been, you know, this total um, whitewashing of uh, safety. And, you know, I think that that is a story that is still being written. I actually, um, you know, I work with some individuals that have um, done analyses. You may be familiar, for example, with the analysis that Dr. Peter Doshi at University of Maryland and some right. other uh, researchers have done that have that it has looked at. Um, has looked at he's the, with the British Medical Journal, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they have a paper that's a preprint that looks at the incidence of severe adverse events. And it's clear that it's much, you know, that, that from their data that they're, you know, we need to look more closely at this. And then there's another study, um, Dr. Stable from, you know, I think Denmark or Norway, a university there, you know, great researcher. And, you know, she basically showed that um, just using the basic trial data, that there was no, um, there was no change in overall mortality with the mRNA shots. So that kind of thing is, um, you know, well, how, why is there no change in overall mortality when the, um, when it did reduce the incidence of, of deaths from COVID? Well, is it a statistical issue where this trial was underpowered or is there more? I mean, I think that there's more. And, you know, and, and just the challenge in my mind is demonstrating these things in a rigorous scientific manner. But I am fully confident that, um, that in the coming months that will be done. Yeah, well, that's good. Good to know. Because, you know, one of the variables that was intentionally excluded from the analysis was one that has traditionally been used in almost every approach in the past. And that is looking at all cause mortality. Right. You know, what, you know, things that you, people are dying from things you would have never expected or anticipated, but this was never included in the analysis. And you, you know, you've got private companies, businesses, like in insurance and in the insurance industry co coming up with this analysis, you know, that suggests that the increase in all cause mortality is 40%. Now, they, they, they've not done rigorous analysis to restrict and identify that variable to the jab, but it's certainly, there, there's just seem to be any other explanation as to what the cause would be. Why would it, I mean, this, this is such a statistical anomaly, it's almost impossible that uh, you could have that increase in all-cause mortality. You have to ask those um, those those scientific questions, and um, and you know that's that's one of the good things about science. It doesn't care um, it doesn't care about the implications of an answer. It just cares about uh, it just cares about what the you know what the answer is. So um, you're absolutely right. I mean, understanding those patterns is critical and it must be done um and um and i think we'll we'll learn more in the coming months do you have any uh predictions or insights that you are able to share what we might see uh later this year um i'm i'm not <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can't disclose them at this time. Confidential. Yeah, I'm not able to yet. You don't want to lose your job. 
I wouldn't want to put you in that predicament, but you know. I, I, it's actually not about the job because, uh, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm lucky to be here, but you know, I, I'm here to do what I think is the right thing to do. And, you know, and if I couldn't do that, I wouldn't be here. I just would not choose to do it. I wouldn't, mm-hmm. wouldn't do it. And, you know, fortunately, um, you know, my boss, you know, Governor DeSantis is, um, he is all down with that. You know, he, he really <laughs> likes that. So, um, so that's, you know, so what I am trying to do instead is just to be careful with, uh, with sure. um, being precise in my language and, um, and, um, you know, waiting until evidence, is, a, the ducks are yeah. lined up. That's uh, always a good strategy. So it, yeah. I, I apologize, but I don't really follow local politics, but I think, I believe Governor Sanders is up for re-election this year, isn't he? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. I thought, I thought it was the case. And that's just like a few months away. I mean, what did the polls show? I just, I mean, he barely won the last election, but my God, my guess is this has got to be a landslide victory, maybe like 80 to 20. I think it's going to be a landslide. I, mean, <laughs> I can't imagine him not getting voted, voted back in. Uh, he's Man. very popular. I mean, everywhere I travel with him, you know, people love to see him. Um, yeah. Every, you know, every, every, every shade and, and uh, you know, men, women, every color, every, every race or ethnicity. And how could you not love him? Yeah. He, he, he had courage. Him. He was brave. He had principles, integrity. He stuck up for the right thing. Exactly. One of the few that did. One of the few that did. And doing it for the right reasons. I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he. I mean, we we we're concluding that it appears every, from everything we can see, it appears to be the right reasons. But I mean, there could be some other motivations for it. But it, it certainly seems to be valid and genuine, and for the right reasons. So, I sure the heck hope he wins. <laughs> Well, and I, I don't certainly understand because, you know, that's it's rare to find that in politics. I mean, what you find in politics, which I yeah. see firsthand is um, is self-interest. And boy, you know, um, just that's like the name of the game. And um, but I, I, I'll tell you, as someone who um, who, you know, I, I I'm like, you know, I didn't get here accidentally. And, and one of the you know, I'm, I'm um, I, you know, I, I sort of feel into um, what uh, what people's motivations are. And he is rarity because he truly um, it's actually not self-interest in, in his case. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I truly, I mean, I, I, I do, I like him a lot and, um, um, you can, I, I will, you know, obviously, you know, you gotta, you gotta conclude whatever you have to conclude, but for him, it's, it's, um, he, he, it's not, it's not, um, it's not self-interest. Um, um, yeah. So maybe you can, uh, give some of the few highlights in the book. Because there's so many uh, of what, from your perspective, what do you think the, because you tell the story. I mean, after you get through your personal story, you, you relate what had happened. And so it's a good summary from my view of what, ha, what has occurred during the pandemic. So maybe you can give a few points on that. And then we, because your, your book's available real soon. It's the first yeah. book I've written. I, I'm, I'm assuming it's the first book. That's right. That's right, Dr. Mercola. Hopefully it won't be discredited. 
but you never know. I mean, and you have, you know, once you're discredited, you can never, I don't care how many books you sell. If your book sells more copies than any other book or, or maybe the top 20 put together, if they decide to discredit you, you will not be a New York Times bestseller. It's just, it's impossible. They've just put, it's like the Google, they censor you from that list. So, but hopefully it'll be successful and they didn't censor you yet and you will make that list. Well, I hope, I hope a lot of people read it um, because I think that, you know, I, I think that it's so important. I mean, I, it just, you know, yeah, I talk about the pandemic, but being in a, getting to a place where you can, you know, where you can um, address challenges in a way that is, um, is consistent with the person that you desire to be um, is, is that's, that's a, that's a major theme of the book and how that journey was for me and everyone has their own journey. But um, I, I, you know, I think I was lucky because I ended up finding my way on the path and I was looking to get better, but not, not quite going down the right way. And I hope that the book can help more people who are on that journey to find the right way. And, you know, yeah, I talk a lot about that. And then, you know, I talk about, I make the case for some other things. So I talk a lot, I talk, I have a chapter about hydroxychloroquine, for example, and sort of an unbiased look at that, the evidence there. Um, I talk about, you know, um, essentially how to approach public health decision-making and how that approach would have um, averted, uh, you know, some of the worst decisions we made, probably the worst being the school closures um, for the kids. Talk a little bit about my friend, Simone Gold and, and that experience and uh, meeting President Trump and, and that experience with Dr. Yeah, Trump. I think she's in, she's in prison now, I think still. She is, yeah. Short yeah. term, I think she's only a few weeks, six weeks or 12 or so. It was relatively yeah, so. Good old political prisoner for yeah. uh, you know, a doctor who's only helped, you know, try to help people and disagrees with, you know, some mainstream ideas. She, she's, not stupid. she's not stupid. She's an attorney. So she knew what she was doing. Yeah. That's, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, um, but yeah, Simone, Simone's a, Dr. Simone Gold, she's a, she's a good friend of mine and I appreciate, um, her commitment to freedom and, um, and, and talk about a few other things in the book. Um, but yeah, I do, I do hope people, people read it and, um, and I hope it benefits people. Yes. So I, 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 don't recall that, that, but if you disclosed your, if you, you were ever got the jab or your family, I think you, I, I suspect you didn't, but you might've been under pressure to, I mean, so many people were coerced into it. It's, you know, they never wanted it, but they really had from their perspective, no real practical alternative if they wanted to continue anything close to a normal life. Yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. I mean, the coercion, that's like, literally it goes against, you know, is like just seminal ethical principles um, to coerce people to um, to accept a medical procedure that um, that they uh, you know would otherwise choose not to. Uh, just another you know indignity to um, to humanity and human sovereignty that um, that was part of the. Uh, part of the part of the pandemic and part of the part of the you know the terrible things with it. So publicly, I've said that, you know, 
I've tried to reestablish a norm, which is that like, you know, because the media is like, oh, did you get it? Did you get it? You know, just tell us what you got, what you got or not. And, you know, well, I, what I've said is not your business, you know, like Nothing. it's never been anyone's business, right? Um, like my friends know the answer to that question because, you know, you share, you can share personal things with your friends and, you know, and I, I'd be happy to tell you. Um, okay, that's fine. I don't know yeah. So I think yes. you a good guess and be correct. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, with your, I mean, the only way that you would have, from my perspective, is the coercion was so severe, you really had no other alternative. Alternative. And that's the thing. But, I mean, and I get yeah. that, but like, you know, that's where people have to decide where they're going to draw a line. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's life changing. And what, what many people fail to integrate into their life is the understanding that when life throws you some massive curveballs, like having to take a, a potentially fatal terminal or radically disabling medical therapy that you don't want. You have the choice to A, to refuse that and maybe get fired or lose your retirement benefits. I mean, a pretty radical change. But the, the point that they don't understand is that what appears to be an insurmountable wrath of negative consequences from making that choice, that they almost always turn out better in the long run because of it, not because they avoided dying, which is a pretty good deal, but, but, but their life just improves because they, they vector off into other opportunities and things that they never would have if they had, if they had done it. And, and just so many people have, are just overwhelmed with fear and, and they they just fail to make those choices. You know, I'm just really, I mean, that deep sadness about the people who, who didn't feel, who are so full of fear that they didn't, have the internal fortitude to make that difficult choice and, you know, run the life journey of experiencing the, the really the joy of finding what the new path is going to be. I hear you. No, I hear you. I, I, I feel the same, the same sad. I also feel sad, you know, and it, it's, it's a tragedy. I mean, and I get it, you know, not everyone, you know, there were a few people that were up for that who were like, hell no, I'm not going to do this. Um, but you know, a lot of people felt that they didn't have a choice and they didn't want to open that door. And you're right. It, it's essentially providence uh, in terms of where your life takes you when you, you know, when you do something and make a choice like that, that on its face, you know, you add the ones in the, you know, you do your arithmetic and it doesn't make sense, but is, um, you know, God's path, um, or sort of a, it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a gracious path. Yeah. It's all divine, divinely orchestrated. Divine. Yeah. 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 So I am speaking of being grateful. I'm grateful for you for coming to our state where we embrace freedom uh, in a very high level. And, uh, and you're certainly helping fortify that process. So we're so glad you're here. And your book comes out really right around the time of this uh, interview. And the name of the book is Transcend Fear. We'll probably put a link to it in the article. And I would encourage you to get it. You're really going to enjoy it. It's so well written. Uh, you're, you have very good journalistic skills, skills. I don't know where you picked it out from. I, I certainly, I may be in your postgraduate process because I'm sure you had to do a lot of writing, but it, it really is, you know, it's, it's well done. I've read a lot of books, so I'm, I'm impressed. Thanks so much, Dr. Mercola. Thanks very much, man.
All right. Well, it's been great. I'm just, again, so delighted that uh, Governor DeSantis decided to select you and you and you graciously accepted and are helping our state. Thanks. Thanks so much, Dr. McCullough. It's my pleasure. I I hope to meet you in person sometime. And thank you very much. Really appreciate you taking, you know, putting me on.